We are in Exodus 20, looking at verses 1 through 3. Exodus 20, 1 through 3. Let's give our attention to God's Word. It says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. The grass withers, the flowers fade away, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray before we uh, consider it further tonight. Lord God, these are your words. You are the author of them. And now we ask that you would be their teacher, that you would come tonight and you would do for us by the power of your Holy Spirit what we can't do for ourselves, which is to open our own ears, to soften our own hearts. Father, would you please do that? We have to ask you because if you don't work tonight, then nothing good will happen. But we trust that you're a God, that you're a good God like you've said you are. And so we trust that you'll do that and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, a long, long time ago, in 1974, which was even before I was born, there was a 19-year-old girl named Patty Hurst. Anybody ever heard of Patty Hurst? Maybe? Okay. And she, well, anyway, 19-year-old Patty Hurst was kidnapped in Berkeley, California, uh, by a, basically a terrorist organization called the Symbionese Liberation Army, the SLA. She was the daughter of an incredibly wealthy family, and the SLA kidnapped Patty Hearst, and they basically tried to swap her, uh, ransom her, for some of their um, uh, compatriots that were imprisoned, try to get them out. And that plan didn't actually work out, but they did basically get the Hearst family to give several million dollars uh, to the homeless in San Francisco in exchange for their daughter. But, the, but her daughter, their daughter didn't return. They gave the money, but... Patty Hearst didn't show up. And so a couple of months later, this story that gained national attention takes this almost unbelievably weird turn. The same group, I believe, is robbing a bank, and they're caught on a security camera, and one of the people that's involved in the robbery who has their own gun is Patty Hearst, the girl that was kidnapped. She had, in about two months, become one of them. It wasn't that she was one of them all, you know, the whole time. She was kidnapped by these people and then eventually just became one of them. She was actually helping them because she wanted to. At that point, she could have gotten out. And that might seem really strange to you, and in some ways certainly it should, but that phenomenon is actually somewhat common enough that it has its own name. It's called the Stockholm Syndrome where uh, people that are uh, taken captive or influenced heavily by someone, that they become, they become so influenced by them that they begin to sympathize with their captors. And I want to suggest to you that it actually, that, that Stockholm Syndrome, it actually has its roots in our very humanity and really what we're going to talk about tonight. It's in our very nature as human beings. Because here it is. Here's here's what I want you to see. 
that by the very nature of the fact that you are a human being, you are built to be dependent on something bigger or more powerful than you are. We're all built that way. We're built to derive our our life off of something that's bigger than us. And so we all naturally tend to look around our lives and be attracted to the thing that we find to be, in our perception, to be the most powerful. And we attach ourselves to it, trying to sort of gain power from it. And when we do that, we tend to love that thing to work for it. And I think you could sum it up by saying this, that we essentially worship it. We give ourselves over to it. And what I want you to see tonight is that because you're a human being, you are, by default, a worshiper. Whether you, would, whether you acknowledge it or not, just because you're a human being, the way that you're built, you are a worshiper of something. But the question is, what is it? It's not a question of if, but what? You know, it very well may not be another, uh, another god that has a proper name. You may not worship uh, any god. But you worship something. It might be something like money or acceptance or, or sex or being attractive or your career. But you worship something. And that's exactly what this commandment is getting at, right? This semester we're studying through the Ten Commandments, God's law for us, and we've said that this semester what we're going to see in God's law, it's going to act like a window showing us God's character. We're going to experience God. And it's also going to act like a mirror to us, showing us our true selves. And so as we come to this first commandment, where God says that we should not have any other gods before Him, that we should only worship Him, What I want you to see is that it assumes, the Bible assumes that you will worship. And again, it's a question of what or whom, and not so much if. So I want to see three things quickly tonight. Uh, I I want you to see that God makes exclusive claims to your worship. Secondly, I want you to see that God makes exclusive claims on your freedom. And then thirdly and finally we'll see that God makes truly free claims to those that are excluded, which is us. So first, God makes exclusive claims on your worship. And this is basically just, uh, we can sort of rename this point, what the commandment says. Right? We're going to look at what it says, uh, why it says it, and what we're, how, how do we deal with it. So what does the commandment say? He makes ex- exclusive claims on our worship. So he says that... We, that you shall have no other gods before me. And so first, let's clear up some, you know, this, it might potentially be confusing, right? Um, that God is not saying that I have to be, as God, I, I need to be on the top of the list. Right? You know, worship, you know, worship whatever you need to, but I'm number one. Okay? Everything else comes after me, that's fine, but I have to be number one. Right? It's actually, it's actually a lot deeper than that. It actually reads in the Hebrew... Not so much, uh, it actually literally reads, you shall have no other gods before my face. Right? So you you hear how personal and intimate that is. Right? Um, You know, when you, I don't know if you do, we don't do this anymore, right? You get to college, maybe it's 
Maybe you do every once in a while. But when you prove somebody wrong, what do you say? You say, in your face, right? <laughs> Hopefully you're past that. Um, but what's the point, right? It, I mean, you get the idea. It's your face, in a sense, is who you are. It's very personal. And God says to us, to the people that he has created, he says, you shall not have any other gods. You cannot worship anything else before my face. So in other words, it's not that I have to be at the top of the list, but basically he's saying, I, I am the list. There is nothing else besides me. There is nothing else besides me that will, that's worthy of worship. Any and everything else is going to come up short. Right? He built us, he knows, and he built us with a certain design. And that design is to find ourselves, our lives, our identity, our everything centered on him. And so, so I want you to see that it's very gracious when God says, I want you to find everything wrapped up in me. You cannot, you, you cannot worship anything else. Other gods are fake. Right? It's really the very context of the Ten Commandments, which we looked at a little bit last week. But right before, uh, God, so God has just led them out of Egypt, right, where they were in slavery. And if, you, if you're familiar with the story, you know there's that whole uh, saga of the, the ten plagues, right? And I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but you know, it's quite possible that when you look back on the, read the, uh, about the plagues, they seem really random, right? So God decides to, you know, frogs show up everywhere, uh, turns the river to blood, uh, Makes it, you know, darkness across the land for, you know, however long. So are they just random events? Well, it was in seminary, I learned that they actually weren't random events, but that God was actually making a very, uh, a very vivid point. Right? The Egyptians were polytheistic. They worshipped a lot of different gods. And basically, each plague was God addressing one of their so-called gods and showing that that their God really just doesn't exist. For example, the darkness, when he turns everything to darkness for however long it was, I don't recall. But basically, the Egyptians worship a God called Amon-Ra, who is the sun god. Right? So they believe in this made-up God, and they believe he's the one that causes the sun to rise. And so essentially what God does is says, you believe in this... And so Pharaoh, by the way, was sort of a, um, an incarnation, I guess you could say, of Amon-Ra. So they worship Pharaoh, the sun god. And so God essentially says, you think this guy can raise the sun? Watch this. And he turns the land to dark. Exodus 10 actually even points out that it was so dark you couldn't even see Pharaoh's face. Right? In your face, Pharaoh. So you see what God is saying. It's not that, it's not that I'm the best of the things that you can worship. I'm the only thing that there is to worship. Everything else falls short. So he makes exclusive claims on our worship. But secondly, and this is where I want to spend most of our time, God makes exclusive claims on our freedom. He makes exclusive claims on our freedom. Like we've said, you and I were built to worship God, and we were built to be free. We were built for freedom, and worshiping anything else is actually slavery. Again, it's no accident that in verse 2, what we just read, God reminds Israel that he has just brought them out of where? 
the house of slavery. He's just brought them out from slavery. Right? It's, it's almost like this enormous illustration. Right? They, they were worshiping other gods. They weren't worshiping God like they should. And he says, look, I, I have saved you. I have, I've brought you into freedom. And now this is how you're supposed to live. My law, obeying my law, is where you will find freedom. So you and I, I want to suggest to you that you and I, we all want to be free, right? We all want to live a you know, free, authentic life. But we're actually, when we, but what we tend to do is find it anywhere other than God. Whether you're a Christian or not, we tend to look for life by our very nature anywhere else but God himself. The very thing that has, has said he will give us freedom we tend to find want to find it in anything else. And that's essentially idolatry, right? It may not look like worshiping, you know, literally bowing down to some sort of statue that you've created in your closet. Maybe it does, probably not. But it probably looks like giving your life in some way to something else. In, in, in a myriad of ways, right? We do it in all sorts of ways. And so what I want to do for just a few minutes is walk through the mechanics of how... How our, how our idolatry works. Of what it looks like in our lives to worship something else. Right? Hopefully so that we can see how we're enslaving ourselves. Because God is, again, God is trying to say, look, I'm not giving you these rules to say like, alright, um, you know, uh, let's see, this would be hard, so no other gods. And what else could we come up with? You know, here's a rule. But what he's doing is trying to give us He's trying to give us the manual, so to speak, of freedom. So here's how idolatry works in our lives, how it tends to. We've got four sort of stages of how you and I do this. First, idols tend to make some sort of promise to give us life. Okay? Idols make some sort of promise to give us life. You and I think we know what we want out of life. We want to find satisfaction Right? We want to live and be alive, enjoy life to the fullest. And so what we do, sort of like with our Patty Hearst illustration, we tend to find the thing that we perceive that will give us that life and grab hold of it. And idols are those things that hold out some sort of um, promise to us. If you have me, then you'll be happy. Uh, a pastor named Tim Keller basically says, he says, in general, you can boil down idols to, to four main categories. And then there are all kinds of ways that, you know, sort of many idols that we try to get these four things. But that ultimately we all want some form of comfort, um, control, power, or acceptance. That really everything else kind of boils down to one of those four things that you and I want out of life. And you probably want one, you know, you might tend towards one more than another, right? But ultimately, we look at life and say, I want something to give me the control that I'm desperate for, or the power, or the acceptance, or the comfort. And so what, what is it for you? You know, you might look around your life, and, and basically you look and see, all right, and I know we hammer on this one a lot, but I think it's important here at a place like Baylor. 
you might look and say, what I want more than anything is comfort. And now look, it's probably not conscious, right? You know, sit down with your, you know, day planner journal, like, all right, comfort at the top. How do I get there? But you want comfort. And so, you know what I need to have comfort? I want a good job where I can make some money. And what I need to make money and get a good job, I need good grades. And so grades, for right now, sort of offers up this promise to you. If you have me, you've got everything you need. It's the idol that says, if you worship me, I'll give you what you want. Maybe you want acceptance, right? You look around, you're like, I, I just, I want to get in. I want to, I want to be with people. I want to find some, a group. And so you look around and you say, all right, maybe it's uh, that fraternity or sorority or that honors club or that whatever group, right? And it seems to offer this promise of if, if you're in here, then you'll, you'll really feel alive. Then life will be, you know, banging on all cylinders. It offers some sort of promise to us. Maybe you do it with your boyfriend or girlfriend, with pornography, with friendships, with any and everything you can think of. So what is it for you? All right, so the first thing is that idols hold out some sort of promise of life. Second thing, the second way that it works, sort of second stage, is we see that promise and we take those idols into our hearts. We hear those promises and we start to believe them. And so our hearts move from thinking that that thing is a good thing, right? Something that is in God's creation that's a good thing. Right, virtually everything that we listed is a good thing, right? It's good to be, it's good to have friends, good to make good grades, money, sex, those sorts of things. But when our hearts begin to take those things and move them from a good thing to an ultimate thing, right? That's when we've taken them into our hearts. And we begin to worship it. We fall in love with it and we give ourselves over to it. Really like we're in, in love with it. All right. I want you to listen to Ezekiel, of all places in the Bible. Ezekiel 14. Um, God is speaking to Ezekiel uh, about his idolatrous people, right? Uh, the whole people of God, Israel. And this is what he says. He says, Son of man, these men... And so, by the way, that's, this is us, right? Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. So he's, he's taken this concept of bowing down to something. He's moved it inside, right, to what you want and what you love, even in the Old Testament. So all throughout 14, God refers back to taking idols into your hearts. All right, but listen to his description of Israel and what she's like in Ezekiel 16, okay? All right, he basically, God describes Israel as a baby that was born and then gets tossed out into a field left to die. Covered in blood. It's just been born and they don't want it and they just toss it aside. So it can just, you know, it'll die in a few days, right? And it's, as it's laying there in its own blood, you know, squirming around, dying, he says that you're like that baby and I came along and I scooped you up. And I cleaned you up. And I brought you in and I took care of you and I grew you up. I gave you everything that you needed. As you grew up, I I gave you beautiful clothes. I gave you a great home. I took care of you. But then that beautiful woman that she's grown up to be because he's taking care of her turns away. 
All right, so listen to 16, uh, some of these verses. These are, you may not believe these are in the Bible. But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourselves colorful shrines, and on them played the whore. The like has never been nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and my silver, which I have given you, and made for yourself images of men, and with them played the whore. Verse 23, and after all your wickedness, woe to you, woe, declares the Lord God. You built yourself a vaulted chamber, and you made yourself a lofty place in every square. At the head of every street, you built your lofty place and made your beauty an abomination. Get this. Offering yourself, but the Hebrew, I think we're just too afraid to translate it this way. This is what it literally says. Spreading your legs to any passerby and multiplying your whoring. And then later he says, adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. Okay, that's about as, <laughs> that's the Bible. It's about as graphic as it gets, right? God says, you're like, you're like this, this woman who... I gave everything for. And not only did you leave me, but I mean, it literally says, you spread your legs for anybody that comes along. You're not just like a common, you know, like you fell in love with somebody else. You'll fall in love with everybody. That's what we are like. The Bible is telling us that's what we are like in our idolatry. That we give ourselves, again, you know, not trying to be more graphic than the Bible. We, figuratively speaking, spread our legs for anything that wants to come along and seem to offer some sort of uh, thrill. That's what we're like. We'll do whatever it, we'll do whatever it asks. So what does that look like? Uh, it looks like when your grades go from being something that you work hard for, Right? And you study hard for it, and it's a good thing, to something that you just give yourself to. It becomes everything to you. Or your fraternity or sorority becomes everything that you care about, right? So all the people that are at Sing tonight, that's those people. I'm kidding. All right, for the tape, right, I'm totally kidding. Okay. But you get the picture. Whatever it is for you, as we give ourselves to it. All right, but here it is. Here's the third phase, right? It seems to offer life. We grab hold of it. We take it into our hearts. But then idols make us work for them. Idols make us work for them. You see, it, they seem to offer this promise. I'll give you this thing. But as soon as you grab hold of it, it flips around on you. This is sort of the dirty little secret of idolatry, right? doesn't tell you that on the front end. Right? It seems to say that if you have me, you'll have what you want. But as soon as you get it, it flips around and says, no, essentially you have to work for me. And you're enslaved to it. You can almost say that it, an idol, whatever idol it is, it has its own ten commandments. Or however many commandments that you have to obey. And if you obey those commandments, you're, you're rewarded a little bit. But what do you have to do? You've got to keep obeying the commandments. And if you don't, you're punished. Right, think about some examples. Um, if it's money, if money's what you're after, uh, what do you need? You need a job. If money's going to give you whatever it is you really want out of life, you've got to have a job. And you get a job, and you've got to what? You've got to work harder. 
and harder and harder, right? The one more dollar. It doesn't stop. If it's your grades, right? You, you get good grades. Well, that's great. But guess what? There's another test. There's next semester. There's somebody that beat you. It doesn't stop. You have to work for it. It doesn't give you anything. Maybe it's your, um, you want acceptance, and so your vehicle is body image. If I look a certain way, then people will like me. Okay, great. So what do you have to do? Well, you've got to beat your body into shape. And maybe it's by exercise in the gym. Maybe it's by uh, controlling the way you eat. Whatever it is. There's no giving. It's all about taking, right? You've got to work. And there's no stopping. Because the second you stop, you're done. Idols make us work for them. Right, look, I got this great quote from Madonna, right? Madonna is in the performer. You're familiar with Madonna, right? Okay, she's spanned many decades. All right, but, but listen, this is amazing that this comes from Madonna. She says, I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being And then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me, because even though I've become, capital S, somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. Right? I mean, that's somebody that you very well might look at and say, like, I mean, she's made it, right? What? And even somebody like that, it goes so deep down. And it never stops. And then lastly, they offer a promise. We grab hold of it. It makes us work for it. And then in the end, we end up looking like uh, idols make us into their image. Right? It's just the nature of the, of the case. Whatever it is that you love and worship and serve, you will begin to look like it. If, if, it is, if you worship acceptance uh, through the opinions of other people, right? that you define yourself based on what other people think of you, and so you, you grab hold of that promise that if people like me, then I'll be somebody, and so you work for that. And what do you do? You tailor everything about your existence to the, to the opinions of other people. And if I need to be a little funnier, I'll be a little funnier. If I need to be a little serious, you know, everything. And so your life begins to reflect what? You begin to look like what? What other people want. Not you. And you begin to dehumanize yourself. You come undone as a person. If you worship money, you're going to end up looking like you're going to be cold and lifeless. Whatever it is, if you worship And since we worship anything and everything other than the God of the universe, it it does nothing but dehumanize us. All right, so how do we we figure out what it is we worship? Let me give you a couple of ways that... Because here, look, you do worship something, lots of things other than God, even if you're a believer. So how do you find what it is? A couple things real quick. Um, Follow the trail of your life. And by that I mean, what do you spend your time... On? What do you spend your money on? Um, when you get a few minutes to you know, just sit and think about nothing, sort of daydream, where do your thoughts go? Look in your checkbook or your credit card register. Where does your money go? 
Where do you spend your free time? Uh, because you're going to spend those things on the things you love. And so you start to follow the trail, and you'll begin to get a good idea of what it is you love. Um, let's see, what else? Uh, another way, what, what, do you, what do you rest in? What makes everything else okay? When you have a bad day, what do you console yourself with? And you, got bad, you got a bad grade on that test, and you think to yourself, yeah, okay, so I'm not like the you know, brightest beer in the drawer, but at least I'm what? At least I'm the funny guy, or at least I'm athletic, or at least I can do this, right? That, that makes me somebody. Whatever that is, it very well might be something that you, that you worship. All right, let's, uh, let's wind up with this. So you see how idolatry, hopefully you see very quickly, look, we could spend a long time on this, right? But you see how idolatry works in our hearts. So now what? What do you do if you, if you do follow the trail and you look inside and you say, okay, yeah, I got a lot of that. I want you to see that God makes truly free claims to the people that are excluded. Right? We said that God gives us these laws um, because he's built us. And he wants to be in relationship with us. Uh, he, we're in covenant with him, right? But if you're honest with yourself and if you use the law like a mirror and you begin to see like, yeah, I, I, I've broken all these and like we're only on number one and I've got, like I've got more, like I don't even know how many idols I have because they all swirl together. Like I want all those things that you talked about and I can't even begin to pick it apart so what in the world do I do? Because if that's true, then I've broken the rules and I'm out. So now what? How do you become free? Well, what I want you to see is that you have to, if nothing else, you have to at least see your idols for what they are. You have to see that they are, you have to find them. You have to begin to identify them. And recognize them for what they are. That it's something that seems to promise life, but it just doesn't. And then you have to, at the same time, go to the gospel. You have to hear the good news. Right? You get to hear the good news. Right? God is trying to show you freedom. Part of the way he's doing that is showing you, like, look, you were enslaved to these things that say they'll make you free, but they don't. And so as you begin to chase down your idols and see like, okay, I worship this and I worship this and I, my heart is cold towards God, I want you to hear the gospel, right, that comes along and, and is the opposite of idolatry, right? What, is, what does God say? Here are the rules, work for me, then I'll love you. No, we, we hammered on that last week. God says, look, I have brought you out of slavery. I've already saved you. Now, rest in this. Right? Jesus comes along and he says what? Worship me. And then what does he do? Does he make us, does he say like, all right, here's what you do. Here's how you start working. No, what does Jesus say? He says, come to me, all you who are weary. All you who are heavy laden. You know, basically all of, all of you that are tired of working for whatever you set your life on. Come to me because I will give you rest. I'm the only thing that you can worship. I'm the only thing you can center your life on that doesn't say, you work for me now. Because actually, I'm going to give everything for you. 
I want to end with this. Because how is that possible? It's possible because what Jesus has done, right? All right, get this. In Matthew 3, we read about Jesus getting baptized. And then he immediately goes and does what? Where does he go? He goes out into the wilderness, into the desert, right? And he's there for 40 days. And he's tempted by Satan. All right, so... If you're familiar with your Bible, right, that should start ringing some bells. That sounds like a lot like what the Israelites did, right? Right after, right around the whole Ten Commandment time. They go out into the wilderness, in the desert, where they are. God gives them the Ten Commandments, and they fail miserably. And they wander in the desert for 40 years. Jesus shows up, goes out into a desert for 40 days. You see the parallel. And is tempted, you know, basically... How does he measure up against the Ten Commandments? What's the third temptation that he faces? Read about it in Matthew 4. Um, It says this. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And what does Jesus do? Jesus says to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Do, do Do you see how... I mean, that's amazing, right? Where God's people in the Old Testament and where you and I fail, right? Out in the wilderness, 40 years, 40 days, fail miserably. It seems like they don't even make it a few hours before they're worshiping the golden calf. And Jesus shows up and he, remember we said last week that Moses was a mediator, but not the mediator. Jesus shows up and he puts himself under the Ten Commandments and he follows them perfectly. Vividly in that, in that moment, and he goes through a lifetime of living, his, uh, of living in his ministry of worshiping, nothing, worshiping God perfectly. Even in the garden when he says, is there any other way we can do this besides me going to the cross? And the answer is No. And he still submits himself. He still perfectly follows his father. And he does it all so that he can take his resume and give it to you. So you see, it's not about you getting it together and working harder, right? It's not that you're working for the wrong things, now work for Jesus. No, Jesus has worked for you. And you get to rest in that. And it's absolutely for free. That's the good news. Won't you take it? Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, if we're honest for just half a second, we recognize that we break this commandment constantly. Our hearts are all over the place looking for anything and everything that we can to find life except for you. But you offer us grace. And you've kept it in our place. So Jesus, we pray that I pray that everyone in this room would grab hold of that truth. Maybe for the first time ever. Or maybe just again. We pray that that would be true. And we ask in Jesus in your name. Amen.